Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Welcome back to Run Tell This, um, where we generally, typically, each week have a distinguished panel of, uh, of journalists as co-hosts. Uh, absent today, unfortunately, is the best of the bunch, Mara Schiavocampo, who could not be with us she is definitely, she and, our, and her family are in our prayers. Uh, so this week is just me and Wes Lowry. We're going to do headlines. Keith, I figured we should probably start talking a little bit about Texas and the weather and everything that's been going on and Ted Cruz. And uh, so what, what do you make of this last week or so and what we've been seeing? So I think, it's, I think it would be very easy to make light of the situation in Texas, I think it would be very easy. Uh, and, and I won't, you know, I won't, I won't lie, right? I spent probably about the first five or six hours of this uh, last week kind of poking fun of Southerners, you know, I mean, listen, like I'm a guy just like you, I grew up in, in the Northeast, you know, you grew, you grew up in Ohio. Um, I lived in Cleveland, I've lived in Boston, I've lived in Connecticut. So it's like, I've done snow my, my entire life. And so, you know, it's just, Take a take a take a certain kind of joy of like joking with people who don't know how to drive and stuff, but it but it very quickly became more than that, um, and and we started to see really quickly how um, how fast this became just just a total total failure of policy of infrastructure uh, and of how vulnerable. Um, how vulnerable, you know, entire an entire state was to to those sorts of to those just just lapses. Um, and as we've gone on, as, as you know, we've just found out more and more and more about these idiosyncrasies about about Texas that are this co- you know collision of seemingly bad public policy, if I'm allowed to say that, right? <laughs> if I'm allowed to make that kind of a judgment, seemingly just you know. Bad public policy with a lack of fort of foresight colliding with uh you know with a, a lack of investment um and with uh what we've all been getting warned about which is which is the potential for for climate change um and how these weather events that look like anomalies are going to stop looking like anomalies and look more and more and more like weather events that happen frequently in places where they didn't used to happen. Um, and so all of this just added up to this, pardon, pardon the phrase, but to this perfect storm um, that unfortunately left, um, tragically left, left people dead, left people, have, has left people homeless, has, has left uh, in its wake, you know, probably, you know, tens if not hundreds of millions in, in, in property damage. Um, and what's scary about it is that the conversation that seems to be happening among, among Texas politicians right now, elected officials, is about, is, is not about how we, how we fix what happened last week 
but about how we how we pivot away from um you know it's it's a messaging sort of sort of thing that like this reflexive you know we've gotten so reflective reflexive in our politics that that when tragedies like this happen it becomes an opportunity for talking points and not an opportunity to examine where these failures happen because because as is often the case the scariest thing about this is that it could just be a dry run this this may not be the 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 worst thing to happen vis-a-vis a natural disaster that could that could uh once again collide with with you know short-sighted public policy and it to, with even worse consequences of course i mean i think that's such an important point you know having covered covered breaking news in the last decade uh what we've seen is these kind of this drumbeat of extreme weather mm-hmm. over and over and over and over and over again even down in texas we aren't that far removed from hurricane harvey which decimated parts of texas galveston parts of houston right and, and so I think it is really important when I mean, we're getting the coast are getting uh, hammered with hurricanes, we're getting snow, we're getting extreme heat at times, right? It's clear and obvious, and the you know, science has told us this for a long time, but it's clear and obvious uh, that the climate is all over the place um, and that it is changing the way different um, places are experiencing weather. And one, and one thing I think that's very important is thinking about you know, one of the, not necessarily ironies, right, but one of the things about Texas is it's this very, like, the ethos of it is very much, we're better than everyone else, and we stand, (laughs) we don't need everyone's help, and sure enough, AOC has to go man their food bank and raise millions of dollars because they can't shovel themselves out, right, but but as easy as it is to kind of make fun of the bravado of Texans, right, plenty of places have pride in their states and municipalities, they're not alone, right, but it speaks to the fact that we're all collectively experiencing such drastic change that mm-hmm. we've all collectively led to through our behaviors and the way we've, we've interacted with the climate that if it's not your state today, it might be your state in four months or five months or in six months. And who knows what that is and what that looks like. And so we're experiencing all of these kind of localized climate events, but the reality is it's something we're all collectively going through, if not today, maybe tomorrow. Correct. And, and, and again, you know, this is I can't stress enough that this this has so much to do with public policy. And, you know, in, in, in the case of Texas, it's very easy to sit back and say, like, this is about a lack of forethought, forethought. And again, that, you know, that bravado of being, you know, we are Texas and we're in de- and we're independent and we're going to build ourselves a, a grid so that we don't have to depend on anybody, you know, and it, and it'd be easy to to really, um, to really deride the state's leaders, you know, who were who who allowed this type of deregulation to to happen. Um, but the problem is that we live in a country that that by and large is regressive on in terms of how we've dealt with uh, with policy around infrastructure and infrastructure investments for a long time. Like the tenor of of most of the nation has been toward. Deregu- more deregulation than regulation and toward less investment and and sort of patchwork fixes than it than it has been toward to, toward making you know broad based upgrades new technologies et cetera et cetera et cetera so when you hear um the governor of a state come out and say well this was the green new deal's fault which is you know <laughs> just point it is it, it, so ridiculous because 
you know, a, there is no Green New Deal, right? Like it's 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 an idea. It's not public policy. It's not something that that passed. It's not even something that that, you know, that would make it out of committee. Um, even in the current Congress, as, as is dominated by by AOC's party, it still wouldn't make you know, the, it, it's legislation that still wouldn't make it anywhere. So we covered the heavy stuff, but I do want to. It's now a little old, but I, but I want to make sure I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least briefly touch on the Ted Cruz group chat <laughs> <laughs> scenario. So, so here, so here's here's what I tweeted, right? Um, that just encapsulates it for me. So Ted Cruz wants us to believe that he has daughters who are old enough to decide at the spur of the moment that they want to fly to Cancun and meet up with their friends. But he also wants to believe that these daughters who are old enough to fly to Cancun at the spur of the moment to meet up with their friends need him to get on a plane with them to be the chaperone. Like, that's not how anything works, right? <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't know how old you were when you start getting on airplanes by, by yourself. I have two sons. You know, you know both of my sons, right? And they were able, they were flying by themselves when they were like 15. Right. And, and like not to Cancun, not internationally, but if, you know, if they needed to, you know, go from Connecticut or from, or from Georgia or wherever we were living, like back to Pittsburgh to see the family, it was like, OK, son, I'll buy you. I'll buy you a ticket. You get on a plane, I drop you off and, you know, and somebody will meet you at the airport on, on the other side. And like this is the thing that happens, like teenagers, young teenagers get on airplanes by themselves all the time on a, on a regular basis. So you mean to tell me that, the, that you have you have, you know, you've you've got you've got people in your household who are old enough to make the decision that they want to fly internationally in the middle of a pandemic and a you didn't you didn't say nah that's not a good idea like you were like nah nah that's cool and as a matter of fact let me let me let me just come to the airport and fly down here with you just to make sure you got there okay come on son like that that's that's the that is like come I come that, that's that is the most ridiculous like and then making it worse right so like so you just so 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 all all of this is all of that was without saying that like ted cruz threw threw his children under the bus like (laughs) so you so you blamed your kids for what you for what you did like you that that was your answer let's 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 assume for a minute that that was sincere and like that that's what really what happened in this instance would you 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 really just decided that that was that was the hill you was gonna die on? Like my daughters wanted to go to Cancun, like that was the thing you was gonna say, dog, dude. That's that like that ain't it. Like, it's just it's not. That's just that's just not it. That's not what you do. And you know, so now we know why it why it is like everybody's everybody's you know not everybody, but I mean you know the the the. The, the running joke about Ted Cruz for the last four and a half years has been here's a here's a guy who didn't stand up for his wife when Donald Trump uh, you know attacked his his wife's aesthetic right like basically you know talk talk told her your mama joke except it was about uh, about your wife right and Ted Cruz then became the lap dog for the dude who talked bad about his wife and here we are here we are what we're seeing is that Ted Cruz is just not the dude who's going who's going to stand up for like. Any of the women in this family, like I, I just thought, I don't know where they do that at, but like, well, and I, I think that I think my thing is like, with all of this, and again, it's it's comical because we've gotten because it's now we're out the other side. But what I think was so interesting, right, is if you were gonna 
if you're going to be sly, if you're going to kind of make the decision that maybe isn't the most responsible given your role in the federal government and, and the crisis happening, like at least be better at it. Like I can respect people who put their lie or like, you know, like it was like he got like he flew commercial and there were already photos of him waiting in like the United Lounge. Like he didn't even get on the airplane before people knew he was flying. He boards the plane. We got we got him putting his luggage up. We got him sitting in the seat. You know, like, like we have him landing and him like checking into the resort. And then meanwhile, his office is all silent. There was some reporting that the people in the office didn't even know, so they couldn't respond. <laughs> he didn't have any plan. He, he literally just thought he was going to leave and go to Cancun for five days. It, like the most visible senator, one of the most visible senators in the country, while his in, while the entire focus of the country is on his state that is state. covered in snow. <laughs> and he was just going to be at a resort? Like what was, the, like how was that going to? So here's, so here's the most, respectable if you want to use that word and i really don't want to use it but i will um here's the most respectable thing about ted cruz and, and what he did in all of this right is that what we're what we're actually seeing about ted cruz is that here's a dude that just doesn't give a fuck yo like ted cruz doesn't give a fuck Remember, like, remember, you know, Kanye just jumped on, you know, when we got out in front of, you know, Mike Myers and, and was like, you know, George Bush doesn't care about Ted Cruz doesn't give a fuck about any people like at all. Not not just, you know, black folks, white folks, like Ted Cruz. The ability that you that that you have to have to just. I refuse to I refuse to believe that you that you were that blind to the plight of people in your state that any that any excuse you could have given short of life or death emergency right like i have to be somewhere else in order to save a close relative that 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 short that short of that there's no way in the world that you couldn't have that that you couldn't have seen that the optics on this regardless of what the truth is but that that you couldn't have seen that the optics on this were just terrible for you to be for you to be leaving a state and so given like ted cruz we, we can make as much fun of him as we want to but he's not a stupid man right like he's actually a, you know educated cat like this he, he's united states senator he has some sense right so then the only option that that i have to believe is that this isn't about information or intelligence that this is about motive and and you know this is about this is about ethos and not about logos, and the ethos that he's expressing is is you know, I shamelessly just don't give a shit. I just shamelessly do not care that you saw me at the airport. I shamelessly do not care that you know that that I'm going to blame this on on my daughters. I shamelessly do not care that that this whole thing was you know was preserved for the historical record in a neighborhood group chat. <laughs> like, I do, I do not give a shit. I'm going to get on this plane and we're going to go to Cancun and I, okay, y'all made a big deal about it.
it's it's just like it's something to be said for that. Something to be said for that. Well, you you had a piece this week, more seriously, on um uh that that ran in GQ. Uh, that's important to the to the movement on uh for for police reform, and it's about the police department of all and of all places, Ithaca, New York. Tell us tell us about that. Yeah, so I so I got a call uh, over the weekend from uh, Samante Myrick, who's a young man, uh, young young black politician, who's the mayor of Ithaca. Uh, he very famously about a decade ago got a lot of press because he was elected mayor at 24. Um, mm-hmm. So was the youngest mayor in um, the history of the state of New York, um, and was one of these kind of like child star politicals, right? So a decade later, he's still the mayor um, in Ithaca, <laughs> and he. Because there is really no political step, no no step ladder out of the out of city hall in Ithaca. Like, have you been to Ithaca? And you only been you only went to Ithaca for one reason, right? Because because what what is what's in Ithaca that we that we all know ex- exactly? Rhea Re, Re went to went to went to Cornell. I've been to Ithaca. It's literally the only reason I've ever been to Ithaca, and the only reason I may ever go again. So, <laughs> so it's a third thousand person college town. The two, co- I mean, so very liberal, very progressive. Um, but he was, you know, as part of following George Floyd, Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered all of the all of the municipalities in the state of New York to conduct a um, policing audit for or write a report, for lack of a better word, to look back at their policies and their outcomes and all of these. The most. Um, in order to be able to continue receiving any state fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, most departments, and I actually do until April, and so a lot of departments haven't sent them in yet. Uh, most departments that have sent them in so far, it's a relatively, it's kind of the report you would expect the police to write about the police, right? Uh, it's not not necessarily particularly imaginative. So, some policy changes or staffing changes, right? We, um, we do them good. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Thanks. We don't know what these people are mad about, right? And so, right. You know, but in Ithaca, in this case, the mayor used, um, and he brought in some outside help, he used this process to do a bunch of focus groups, to do a bunch of public town halls, and to really try to push and champion um, a more radical or different recommendation. So what he announced on Monday was he's recommending basically getting rid of the police department as it currently is, and starting a new department that would include as many unarmed officers, not calling any of them officers they got mm-hmm. on the Right, but as many unarmed officers as they have armed officers um, have that whole department report through a civilian, not a police chief, um, and essentially use the armed officers only for violence, only to investigate violence or respond to violence. And all other police functions, whether it be traffic ticketing or coming out for a report or mental health call or homelessness call, would be done basically by unarmed officers. Right? Uh, this is a pretty, you know. It's interesting because the plan and the proposal is a few things, and it's getting hit from both sides, as, as is always the case, right? It's, in fact, the most radical plan we've seen rolled out in any municipality in the country. Uh, there have been some other places that have done things like stop traffic enforcement in the same way or get rid of school resource officers, right? But the idea that you would essentially disarm half of your, uh, of your policing capacity and have unarmed people doing a lot of that work is a pretty remarkable shift from what had been happening previously. Is this full abolition abolition? No, not really. Is this is this a world without police? Certainly not, right? 
but um, it is a pretty bold step. And, and so I wrote it up, you know, he shared the plan with me first and, and we did an interview and he kind of talked about this and his theory around this. I, I remember he said, he goes, you know, he's been overseeing this department for about 10 years uh, since he was mayor. And he goes, with the department, it feels like you've got a fish tank that someone poured red dye into. Mm-hmm. And so they're taking one gallon of water out at a time and replacing it with fresh water. And the gallon gets a little less red. Um, and, and then a police shooting happens or and, and the more red dye goes into it. And he right. goes, you know, this is a way for us to start with a fresh tank, right? To dump the whole thing out and get fresh water, new department, new policies, new rules, new kind of modus operandi. Like, and so it's really interesting. Now there's, there are some like logistical and strategic impediments here it's going to be really interesting to see if this ever actually comes to fruition um first and foremost he's got to deal with his union um and there's a non-illegitimate argument the union might make that this is a form of union busting right you have 60 you have 60 union cops now and what you're doing is starting a new police department <laughs> with mm-hmm. a bunch of people who don't have it that, i think that's going to be interesting um you, you know it's it, so uh, there are some in, impediments that might keep this from ever actually rolling out but it is interesting because I do think that these types of proposals are what in some ways the future of policing, whether that is a short-term future or a medium-term future, I think that is where the conversation is going, especially in places that are not hyper-violent, right? That there's in fact relatively low, in a city that has maybe one murder a year, mm-hmm. there's a much less risk in trying something like this than in a place where, where there's more emergency happening. Right. And so and so there are a couple of things there that you brought up. I think, number one, um, clearly the, the police union would be the largest impediment to, to enacting something like this. The police, police unions are extraordinarily powerful um, in, in, in not only just protecting their, their, their members through work, work rules, but in terms of Preventing any sort of sort of structural change or even any any level of discipline against officers, even against officers who have very clearly broken broken the law. Police unions uh, are are as big an impediment, or or uh, or if not larger, uh, than in some instances the juries and the district attorneys who who either refuse to charge officers or or who return uh, not not guilty verdicts, and 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 they they have emerged as remarkably bad actors. And I'm not just speaking in terms of police reform, but I'm speaking in, in terms of just, you know, the bare, have, having, operating with the barest level of, of good faith in terms of, in terms of representing not just their officers, but in terms of the communities that they, that, that those officers are then entrusted with. Um, and so it's gonna be very difficult to, I can imagine that in a place like Ithaca, as liberal as it as it is, um, outside of those universities, it's it's still a it's still a, an American town in a very very remote place, um, and in those kinds of places, police unions uh, tend to tend to punch, you know, even above above their weight, um, even by the standards that we would see, you know, in in, in major cities. The second thing uh, that that kind of struck me about this is. As you mentioned, how how might this be applied in a, in other places? And I and I actually 
would imagine that that this would be on some level. I think if you if you were to talk to police officers, um, maybe anonymous, anonymously, because probably not too many of them, I imagine, would put would, would actually put their names on. But I would imagine if you were to talk to officers, at least some officers, and they were being honest with you, um, this would be welcome. Um, many police officers, if you talk to them, will will tell you that they spend far too much time going into situations that they shouldn't be going into. And so when you, and, and then when you look at some of these shootings and some of these, uh, and, and some of these incidents where people have either been assaulted or lost their lives or, you know, some, some bad outcome has, has come, usually they start with, they start in situations that are innocuous. Like it's not, it, it, it it's, it's relatively rare to see, and you've and you've done, you know, Pulitzer winning work on on on, you know, count just counting the number of police shootings. Um, so you know this that it's actually relatively rare that police officer discharges a weapon, uh, discharges a service weapon at somebody or in an altercation that begins as a violent altercation with a, with you know with with a civilian. What's what's much more common. Um, is that these altercations start as something innocuous and then and, and escalate into into something larger, um, and so lots of officers, you know, would 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 say that if I don't find myself going into a situation where I'm you know where I'm pulling somebody over for a minor traffic offense, where I'm you know frisking somebody who who's only got weed, where I'm you know. Where, where I'm, where I'm on a, a a welfare check, or where I'm on a like, these are the types of these are the types of interactions that you can that you can minimize contact with somebody who's armed and under the protection of law to either deprive you of of life or liberty. Um, and so I just and, and so I wonder, Wes. I guess what I'm getting at is I wonder is what, at what point do Officers themselves, and is that even possible? At what point do officers themselves start to break with the unions to the extent that it would that it might seem that the that the that the unions' unwillingness to to give any ground on the issue of reform stands in the way of some actual policy changes that officers them that rank and file officers actually support. I think it's going to be really interesting. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the union does here. I think that what's interesting is if you listen to what police labor has said over the last few years, right? I've spent as much time talking to line officers and union officials and chiefs, and you know, that one of the chief complaints of the FOP and other places is that police officers are being asked to do so many different jobs. That mm-hmm. They are the face of this. They are the only remaining social safety net. If it's a homelessness call, if it's a drug call, if it's a domestic violence call, if it's a, they are the ones who show up and now you've inserted people with guns and what's in, and guess what's going to happen in some of these scenarios, right? I think that plans like this take those concerns seriously. Mm-hmm. That the police are being asked to do more than they are capable, equipped and trained to do in many cases in most municipalities and also are doing a lot of things that the public doesn't necessarily want them to do. Some of the most enraging videos I hear from my readers and people I talk to all the time are cases in which 
the incident begins completely innocuously. Someone hasn't even called. And so there's the Elijah McLean case in Aurora, mm. Colorado, um, where some news just came out on that this last week. But this is a case of a young autistic man who's walking down the street who is who gets stopped by officers for no reason necessarily right there was very recently there was just a viral video this last week of a mm-hmm. black kid in texas in texas home mm-hmm. from he has a walmart job and he lives a few blocks away and he's walking in the street because it's a it's a it was icy it's a snow <laughs> on the sidewalk the sidewalks aren't plowed right and the police come up to him and are asking him all these questions and all this stuff and ultimately arrest him and he's just walking you know he's bothering no one doing nothing walking home right there's any amount of you look at this it's what we feel it's about the sandra bland case right the, mm. like a traffic stop for like theoretically not using a blinker or not say should not result in someone in jail or in and i think that there's a tension there very often right is that when you insert a police officer into a scenario you've inserted someone who has the right if they feel disrespected or disobeyed or threatened to uh, deprive you of liberty, of freedom, and in fact, to take your life in many cases. And I think a lot of Americans across the political aisle feel as if they would prefer a world with fewer interactions with such people. (laughs) Because because guess what? When you don't interact with people who can do that to you, they can't do it to you, right? And you don't have to worry about what what might. And so I think it is going to be really interesting to see um, how much of the things we currently ask the police to do can effectively be done by other people, other services, right? We've seen other places, Eugene, Oregon kind of pioneered uh, what they call the CAHOOTS program, which is for all mental health calls, mental health social workers go out, not the police. And it's a whole side mm-hmm. of this, right? And, and so it's interesting to start looking at some of those things. And look, there's going to be the kind of natural backlash at some point. At some point, an unarmed officer or a mental health counselor is going to show up at a situation and it's going to end violently. The person's going to get harmed or killed. And people are going to go, see, that's why it should have been an officer with a gun. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't a thing where you can kind of light switch it on and off. And, and so I think it's going to take some work. But I do think it's exciting to be at a point where we are kind of collectively more inclined to grapple with big questions and propose big solutions to them, as opposed to this kind of sense of, well, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to fix it? Mm-hmm. This is just the way and I think that we are much closer to that today than we were five years ago when we were having these conversations. Absolutely. So the last thing I wanted, I wanted to get around to um, was this story out of Tennessee. And I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see this, but um, so this week, uh, every, every Republican member of Tennessee's state Senate signed on to a letter that was written to the president or and or chancellor of every state university in the state and what they've asked for is for is for each university in the state to put in place a policy that would that would ban and make punishable any athlete who who decided to kneel or, or do any other form of protest during the playing of the national anthem at a sporting event. So right now, if I'm a, if I'm a basketball player at, you know, at, at, you know if, if I play for the Volunteers, University of Tennessee, you know, big, big time power five basketball school, uh, or if I play for, you know, if I, or if I play, you know, volunteer football, it's an even, an even better example. 
And I decide I want to kneel during the playing of the national anthem. Um, and these, you know, and these legislators get their, get their way and I get punished or I get benched um, because I because I did that. You know what I'm doing? I'm entering the transfer portal. It's real simple. It's real simple because, you know, now now that might not be the case for some for some people playing at some of the, some of the smaller schools, um, you know, but it, but at some of these lots, but, you know, at a, at a program as large as, you know, in particular, the University of Tennessee, like that's a place that's getting four and five star recruits, basketball and football and four and five star recruits. Oh. A lot of major programs. And, you know, four, four and five star recruits always have options like they ain't got to sit around and, and, and take this nonsense from somebody who ain't writing them a check. Like, I'll just go across the border and play somewhere else. I don't know how they think this is going to work out for them, but I'm here to tell you it ain't going to work out well. You know, and, and because I also think oftentimes taking steps like this prompts backlash that is outsized. Right. That the reality was I'm not sure how many players in the state of Tennessee were planning on kneeling at all this year in any context. Correct. Right. Like, the, you know, like who knows, perhaps, perhaps mm-hmm. I'm aware that central Tennessee's volleyball team was getting, <laughs> I, I don't know what I don't know. Right. But also the, to, 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 to clamp down in this way. I mean, look, I think that one of the biggest issues here at the core and the heart of, of this entire debate that has now stretched on for years, more than five years, has been this, or coming up on five years, at least it is um, 16, is this suggestion that, you know, on the one hand, you have, we have a debate about what are our values and where do we rank speech and patriotism? And what do those two things mean and look like? Uh, how does that, how do those rankings and how do the respect of those values change depending on who the person involved is? Um, are they a professional athlete? Are they an athlete of color? Are they are they a white athlete? Are they uh, an amateur athlete? Are they a college athlete? You know that we are in this society where what we're seeing time and time again. I think this is an example of it. Are, are powerful people and powerful interests attempting to control and regulate the speech of, of other people? And, and, and I and I just think on its face, right? We you know, I think most people agree there there are some lines, right? I think there are, actually, in fact, very few free speech absolutists, right? That that we that, that pe- there are most people, I think, uh, agree that there are some lines that, that there are some lines of what's acceptable in public and what is not for what there should and and is social consequence to or professional consequence to, right? But I also do think that for the most part, it, if speech that is in no way harming anyone. That is just an expression of personal political belief done within the context of your own <laughs> space is not something we should necessarily be clamping down on. In the same way, this is, I mean, it's a tired analogy, but Tim Tebow can kneel on, on the sideline and say his prayer. And look, to some people that may be offensive. Some people just want to watch the football game. They're not trying to deal with religion, and blah, right? But that's his prerogative to do what he wants to do in that space. It's not harmony, right? And I think that, I just think there's a real, um, I think these moments so often show how 
you know, there are narratives about how these conversations exist on a spectrum. And currently the popular narrative is, is the left that's trying to shut down all the speech and, and it's trying to punish you if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Well, look, the political right in this country for five years has publicly campaigned to fire people who express a political opinion while playing sports. <laughs> yeah, if, that, if that ain't cancel culture, I don't know, I don't know what is. Like. I mean, there's no better example of quote unquote cancel culture than Colin Kaepernick. Absolutely. And I, you know, and I think that that uh, in which the president of the United States campaigned for him not to have a job and succeeded. And succeeded. And, and so I think that that, you know, I, I'm fascinated. You know, I haven't dug all the way into what's happening in Tennessee at all. I think it's fascinating. I, as, as a general rule, I, I think that I think kneeling and this conversation about the rights and how we respect the rights of athletes and what athleticism and amateurism means in our, I actually think it's very rich things that can tell us about ourselves, um, whether we want to accept those things or not. Um, and so I, I'm really looking forward to diving into that even more and getting more of a sense of what might play out there. Let's get our guest in here. Absolutely. So today we have uh, Dr. Carl Hart, who is the Ziff Professor of Psychology at Columbia University in the city of New York. Uh, and a lot of his research and including his, his uh, most recent work has been around the issue of drug policy, the war on drugs and the impact of uh, on, on drugs in, uh, on individuals and in communities. Dr. Hart, thank you for joining us today on Run Tell This. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad to talk to you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, in your in your most recent book for grownups, as you can uh People who are who get the opportunity to see the clip will see uh, right behind you. Four grownups chasing liberty in the land of fear. Tell us, uh, tell us what brought you to write that book, and what people are going to get out of it when they go when they go and, uh, and give it a read. Well, I, I think that the action is in the uh, subtitle where uh, it's chasing liberty in the land of fear. Since I'm an expert in drugs, uh, the topic is drugs. Um, I'm using that topic to exp explore liberty. And I want people to consider their own liberty uh, once they read this book. Um, um, in this country, we are all guaranteed this thing, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That really means that you can live your life how you see fit, as long as you don't prevent others from enjoying these liberties. Um, but using the topic of drugs, I'm showing that we violate the spirit of that promise. We violate that promise all the time. And in violating that promise, there are specific groups who pay the price, largely uh, poor people, black people, uh, and others, uh, specific minorities. And, and that's kind of what I'm talking about in the book. All right. And so one of the things that's most interesting, or I think the, the probably the, the most salacious detail about the book and, and about you and about your story is that you write from a perspective of not someone who is a who is a researcher and a psychologist who's just done clinical research and academic research about drug policy and, and about narcotics, but you openly admit that you are a recreational user of what people would consider hard drugs or, or from the legal definition, Schedule A uh, sub substances. Um, talk about the, your personal experience in your, in your use, because this is not just, this is not you know, people say, oh, I experimented a little bit. This is not, I, I, you know, I puffed, but I didn't inhale. This is, 
This is actually your experience with with using narcotics recreationally as you go about your your day to day life. No, that's a that's a mischaracterization. That's what the okay. nonsense is being said. Uh, so there, you said a lot of things there. So let's unpack what, like you'd say, hard drugs and that distinction. The body doesn't make that distinction. That's a political distinction. So that's let's so let's get rid of that sort of distinction. Um, now, what I do here is that the thing that the thing that I ask the reader once they've read the book, I ask people who are using any drugs that are banned. Marijuana is currently banned in the United States. Psilocybin, ayahuasca, all of these drugs are banned. But we have millions of Americans who use these drugs. One of the things that I ask the reader to do, because people always ask me, what can I do to help? I say, get out of the closet so you can change the image of what we think of as a drug user. That would go a long way. Because when we think of a drug user, we think of some down and out, typically minority person. But the typical drug user is a white middle class person. And so that's why I'm asking middle class people, privileged people to get out of the closet. And when you ask people to do that, you must get out of the closet. And what I do in this book is I reveal the fact that I also use drugs. You know, I use drugs uh, regularly, but occasionally. That, that doesn't mean that, that could mean that once a, a month, once a year, but it's regular. And so um, I had to disclose that I used heroin. I had to disclose that I used marijuana. I had to disclose that I used MDMA. But uh, once you say you use something like heroin, people then go to this place where they say, oh, you're, you're shooting up every day. Like, where the fuck you get that from? You, not that there's anything wrong with it if, if people are doing that, but I study drugs. If you study drugs, you know that people inject the drug largely because the drugs that you get on the street, particularly something like heroin, are so unpure that you the percentage of heroin that might be contained in that drug is like maybe five to 30% if you're lucky. I don't use street drugs. And so I don't, there's no reason for me to snort, I mean, to shoot a drug. Um, I would, and you know, I've never shot a drug or anything like that. So people, that's why you have to read the book. So you see uh, what I'm saying, it has a lot to do with uh, understanding of those people who are catching hell, understanding and supporting those people. And so in part of my sort of support for them, I'm standing with them. Yeah, I'm one of you. Uh, and, and, and so I want them to be less ashamed. And so when people have the attacks, yeah, bring the attacks to me. Don't bring them to the people who uh, are not equipped to deal with the attacks. Bring them to me. But get the story right. Read, this, read the book, and then people will see that, wait a second, these arguments, what you're saying is that, wait, 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 the, the war on drugs function as a jobs program? specifically, largely for uh, white, under, uneducated males. Uh, that we, Oh, really? Yeah, check it out. Are you saying that our uh, drug laws are in place or drugs are banned, not because of pharmacology, but because of racism? Yeah, check it out. That's what this book is about. So, so Absolutely. Go ahead, Wes. You, you talk about the stigma, about how we think about a quote unquote drug user, the image we get in our mind when we think about that. 
And, and what do you think are some of the contemporary uh, limitations of our public policy or even our public imagination about drugs in our society because of that stigma, because of who we imagine a drug user is, because of what we, you know, in a world in which there was more open disclosure, open discussion about the types of people who are using drugs and what drugs, how might that change our public perception? Yeah, let's just take the current opioid crises, which I talk a lot about in the book. Uh, so people are dying from opioid-related overdoses. They, they, this is what we say we're concerned about. Um, and so you, you see something, you say they're dying from heroin. People are not dying from heroin so much. People are dying because they're getting tainted drugs. And this is an easy, solvable problem. We can do like they do in Spain, Austria, the Netherlands. What they do is they have these, these things set up where you can submit small samples of your drug. Uh, 10 milligrams, some small amount, and then you can get a printout of what is contained in that substance, uh, in the doses that is contained in, and you get a printout of what each substance is. Um, and then so that means if you have some substance that's potentially dangerous, you don't take it. Um, this is what they do in other countries. If we really cared about people dying from over overdoses, we would do that here. It's a cheap thing to set up. It's not that expensive. We have the technology, we have the money, but we don't really care about those people. If we really care, we'd say to people, all right, yo, if you're taking opioids, uh, don't combine them with other sedatives, particularly if you are inexperienced. Don't do alcohol with it. Don't do benzodiazepines with it. Don't do antihistamines with them. Uh, all of these sorts of things increase the likelihood of respiratory depression. If we really cared, we'd have that kind of public service announcement. Uh, we could think about uh, uh, Prince. Uh, Prince, uh, what has been said to have uh, died from getting tainted uh, Oxycontin pills or tainted Percocets. He thought he had Oxycontin, but he had fentanyl apparently. That, would have, that problem would have been detected if we had drug checking in this country, where you can submit that pill and see exactly what's in it. This is not difficult. These are the kind of things that I'm writing about in this book, whereas the press or the, the, Salace, the New York Post focus on the fact that I said I use heroin. It's like, I'm trying to save people and you're trying to kill me. So I want to I get into a little bit of, um, and I think that, you, that you're correct. There's a lot to unpack there. There's a, there's a, a ton to unpack in terms of the drug war in terms of where we've been in the last 40 years. Um, and, I'll be, and I'll be personal because that, affect, that has affected my own family uh, in, in great ways. I have, an, I have uh, multiple relatives who have been drug addicted, multiple relatives who have been addicted to, uh, to, to opioids long before, it became, before opioids became a crisis. And you talk in the book about the difference between addiction and recreational use. So one of the things that people often do in this conversation is they, they conflate drug addiction with drugs. To be clear, drug addiction has almost nothing to do with drugs. When we think about drug addiction, uh, and I'll tell you why, the vast majority of people who use any drug from marijuana to heroin, we, uh, 70 to 95% of those people will never experience drug addiction. That means that the vast majority of users of any drug will never become addicted. That tells you that drug addiction doesn't have anything to do with the drug. And so you say, well, what does it have to do with? It has to do with 
a wide range of other psychosocial issues, other issues like, for example, if someone is, uh, they have anxiety, they have schizophrenia, they have depression, they have any other sort of psychiatric illness, it increases the likelihood that they will become addicted. We think about people who have uh, unrealistic expectations placed on them constantly. We can think about childhood stars, celebrities, where they take care, they have to take care of their entire families and they have to continue to make that kind of money because everybody's depending on them. Those unrealistic expectations drive drug addictions in some people. We can think about the Rust Belt of America where uh, GM and uh, these other factories left uh, for other countries for cheaper labor, where those people from Michigan and Ohio, they were making a decent middle-class living. Now that's gone from them. And now they, they, they are no one in their community. They can't take care of their family at the same level increase the likelihood that those people will become addicted to whatever they, they get into. All of those factors are critically important for drug addiction. You know, like with crack cocaine and black people in the 80s, this is how I came to this sort of study. I thought crack was the problem. I was, uh, I thought it destroyed my hood in Miami, um, uh, but I was so wrong. It was all of those other factors. Uh, like unemployment rates, the highest levels of unemployment in the United States was 1982. Crack didn't appear until like late, late 1985 in most places, but yet we blame crack for that. Um, when we know it was all these other sort of factors. And so people conflate the drug with drug addiction. Drug addiction has everything to do with all of the messed up stuff that's going on in society but we blame the drug because it's easy to blame the drug. And politicians can say, I got a solution. I'll put more cops on the streets. And then people say, yeah, they're being responsive. But what that means is that that's a jobs program, typically for uneducated white guys that's predicated on the incarceration of black and brown bodies. This is what I'm saying in the book. And I'm trying to get people to see how they've been had, how they've been hoodwinked so we can change this situation. And when we think about uh, our families, uh, people who uh, uh, were addicted and had problems, that's a very real thing. But the problem is that people are misattributing what's really going on. It's so easy to blame a drug, but please look beyond the drug because I assure you, it ain't the drug. Well, yeah, and, and I wanna be clear about what, it, about what I was saying, right? In, in asking that question. I don't quote unquote blame the drug any more than I quote than I would blame the gun when somebody got got shot, right? I understand all of the conditions that you that you spoke of. I understand the unemployment problem. I understand exact it's I understand slight, it's exactly. Slight, it's slight, it's slightly different with a gun. Let's remember a gun is designed to kill. The drugs that we're talking about, the, the things, the drugs that we're talking about, they bring people pleasure. So let's like, and pleasure is a good thing, uh, except in the United States. We somehow have gotten that shit twisted. Pleasure is good. Right. So to be clear, again, I'm not blaming the drug. I understand all of the, all, all of the socioeconomic conditions that you're, that you're speaking of because I come from that same environment and I'm a product of that. And I've seen it and I understand how those different things, how those different things play. Um, I do think that on that on some level, the drug enters the the drug then becomes 
it either becomes an escape and you talk about, you know, drugs being people bring people pleasures so then people who are in people who are in bad circumstances or people who are under un, undue stress or people who are wrestling with the effect of losing a job or wrestling with the with the effect of of the abandonment in their communities or wrestling with any of these things that are super stressors in that environment, some people will then turn turn to the drug. We have had in this country an absence of a, a real conversation around what, around what drugs do and, and, and how they entered certain communities in, in vast quantities when they didn't enter other communities or relatively unregulated. Um, but then we have a, but then there's another conversation to be had about what the specific health impacts of long-term either casual and, or, or addictive use of certain substances are. And I imagine that I have not had the opportunity to, to read the full book. I have, I have had read some pieces of it, but I haven't had the, the opportunity to read the full book. Um, I'm wondering where you think drug policy should break in this country. Clearly the war on drugs did not work. Clearly that like mass incarceration didn't work. Flooding our cities with police officers didn't work. Um, where should public health policy be with regard to with regard to drugs in the country, and where should should enforcement at all be a factor in addressing the use of narcotics or the use of any drug in this country? Yeah. So to be clear, let's make sure that we understand that the war on drugs did work, and it is working. The war on drugs is an effective jobs program, and there are people who are benefiting handsomely. That's why it continues. So we have to make sure we understand that it's working. Uh, it's just not working for us, but it's working. That's why it's in effect. Now, when we think about what we should do about policy, and this is what I talk about this in the book, the Declaration of Independence is an excellent document, despite the fact that uh, the person who wrote it, Thomas Jefferson, uh, was a horrible person, despite that. The, the words and the principle, the ideas are amazing. The idea that humans, we, can live our life like we see fit as long as we don't bother anyone else. It's clear that the drugs should be legal and the government does have a role. It has a role just like it has a role in alcohol. It makes sure that alcohol is not tainted. It makes sure that the amount of alcohol in a bottle uh, is not enough to kill us. Uh, that's the unit dose. Uh, the government, uh, it also helps to educate us about the effects of alcohol when the appropriate time to use that sort of stuff. That's the role that the government has in protecting citizens. The same could be true with MDMA, with cocaine, with heroin. The same can be true. And the same should be true. And in that way, we won't not be arresting all of these people that we are for drugs and giving them records, even if they don't go to jail, they're now on somebody's paper. Uh, it's a way to harass certain people. Uh, so in the book, I argue that we should live up to the ideals of the founding document of the country. Unfortunately, not anybody else have read the document. The document said that when governments fail to secure those rights, governments should be disbanded. So you're making you're making essentially a, a libertarian argument. No, no, I am not. To... I, I am not. Okay. I, I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not on anybody's team because no, I no, believe. No, no, I'm not. 
I, I believe we should be taking care of people. No, I, I don't. I just don't want to be in those camps because it puts you in these awkward positions because sometimes the Democrats have a good idea. Sometimes they have a bad idea. Sometimes the Republicans have a good idea. Sometimes they have a bad idea. I, I'm, I like to be a free agent and an intellectual, somebody who can say, I'm taking the best of the best and I don't want to be in any of those camps. And that and that's fair to be to be clear. I'm not I'm not labeling your own personal political philosophy as libertarian. What I'm saying is that you, that the argument that, that you're making is essentially looking at the Constitution and looking and, and looking at our, our founding documents that government is intruding into your personal liberty vis-a-vis -vis the prohibition on on drug use and the lack in, in the 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 subsequent either over-regulation in some areas or over-enforcement and lack of regulation to, for, the, for the purpose of, of ensuring that your freedoms can be enjoyed safely. That seems to be, that's the basis of, of your argument with regard to, to drug policy. That's it. Gotcha. Why else be here? I'm an adult, I'm responsible, I take care of my family, I pay my taxes. Why the fuck I wanna have somebody tell me what to do? I mean, that's, that, I, can't, I, I, don't, I can't get down like that. Are you worried at all? Or, or how would you address um, in your version of this world, right? What happens when other drugs uh, like uh, are, are suddenly subject to the capitalistic forces the way tobacco and alcohol are, right? That, that suddenly, all right, so there is a market and there is a world and we now have an entire lobbyist class who are fighting against the type of regulation to make sure that we're taking things in the right amount or are incentivized to order up fake scientific studies to argue, well, actually this, this one isn't dangerous at all. When in fact, we know based on the current science that, well, it is after this point, or if you do it this way, or right? what, what happens? I mean, when we look, we, we certainly have things that are drugs, alcohol, tobacco yes. that are available and are legal. And we also know that historically those or the organizations that make money off of them have lied to all types of people that have led to more people being harmed by those drugs than, than otherwise would be true. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're describing now is a capitalistic problem. That's a problem with our economic system where these groups can take advantage of the consumers. And, and, and that should be regulated in a way that you protect consumers. Uh, we used to do this with a number of products, but one example of groups taking advantage of consumers with a drug is tobacco. Well, you know, I know quite a bit about the tobacco story. We knew as early as 1959 that tobacco caused cancer. We knew that. What the tobacco company did though, however, was that they said, don't worry, we got you. We got to set up this tobacco research council. And they set up this tobacco research council Really what it was, was a PR firm and it operated effectively until like 1994 when it, when it was really exposed. Um, but that's a problem of companies deceiving their consumers and the companies should pay handsomely for that. Tobacco really hasn't paid for the lying and the misleading of the public. And I worry about that too, but that's a different issue. That's how we regulate companies. Uh, companies with a lot of influence, they pay for that influence. Um, yeah, we have to do a better job. Uh, I'm not the best person on how to do that, but there are experts who, are, who should be able to make sure that the public are, are, are protected from predatory companies. We've seen now 
in in many states across the country to legalization. I think it was just in uh, New Jersey yesterday that, uh, or not yesterday, but but over the weekend that um, that marijuana for recreational use has been legalized. So we're starting to see this movement towards towards ending prohibition at the very least on weed, right? What have you seen in terms of the most problematic situations where regulation and enforcement at, are, are concerned with deregulated or decriminalized weed across the country? Well, when we, uh, I talk about this in the book, when we think about weed, the thing we have to understand, like, right now we have 15 states that have legalized marijuana, including New Jersey. Right. New Jersey, New Jersey is the blackest of those states. The vast majority of those states, their black population is less than the national average. And so one of the things that, that I predicted in the book is that uh, marijuana legalization ain't coming to the South because marijuana sort of law as a probable cause. Like I smell weed, so now I can mess with you. That's too important for law enforcement in the South where you have large populations of black people, people that you can mess with. So I asked the reader to keep an eye on that. And you can see how drug policy is being used against certain groups. When you talk about legalizing weed in the South, you see who comes out against legalizing weed. It's law enforcement lobbies. And so New Jersey is gonna be an interesting sort of, um, uh, state to keep an eye on. We in New York will be legalizing next because we don't want New Jersey to get New Yorkers the tax revenue, the money revenue. from weed. And, and when we think about marijuana legalization, marijuana is legal not because of all of the sort of injustices, uh, all of the racial discrimination that has taken place as a result of marijuana uh, uh, arrest. No, it's legal because of the tax revenue. That's the same thing that happened with alcohol. We banned alcohol through alcohol prohibition from 1920 to 1933. Um, the reason why we overturned alcohol prohibition was because we promised the country that we would no longer have an income tax. The, the alcohol revenue was supposed to replace the income tax. And so that's why we reversed uh, alcohol uh, prohibition. And so it's always about the dollars in a capitalistic system like ours. Absolutely. And you, you brought up racial disparities with regard to, to decriminalization of weed. Racial, racial discrimination, discrimination in, in, in decriminalization of weed. We've also seen in, in many of the states that have already decriminalized that the one thing they haven't done is erased the prohibition on people who have who have convictions who have drug convictions on participating in the legalized industry. So here, and of course, we know that the enforcement was primarily against people who look like us. It was black and brown people who were going to jail either for possession of weed or for traffic or for trafficking weed or whatever whatever the case was. You then had a had a conviction. In many instances, those were felony convictions. Here's a person who there are still people in jail right now in states that have decriminalized weed. And their only crime was possession or distribution of, of weed. What is it going to take? And you probably, I mean, clearly this is not a question you can necessarily answer, but what do you, what do you think it would take to actually get over that, that hump? And to me, it appears that somebody who has that skill, it would be, would be, be as if 
you know, a parallel that I, that I use is there are people who have gone to jail for being hackers and they committed illegal activity digitally. They serve their time, they come, they come home. And now, of course, there are many legal applications for computer hacking, right? In, in the cybersecurity arena, in the national security arena. And these are people who have served their time and then they go into legitimate jobs and they become productive uh, e economically. When is that going to happen in your estimation, or will it happen with when we talk about when we talk about weed? When brothers who have been locked up for possession or for distribution can be done with their sentences and actually go into what is now a legalized, legitimate tax generating, revenue generating business? Yeah, so we have to look to Illinois for an example. Illinois legalized weed a, a, few, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that they did was to uh, uh, forgive those uh, uh, people who had uh, weed convictions. They also gave priority to those people when it came to getting a marijuana selling vendors, vendors license. Um, so Illinois, it, at the moment, it's the model state of how you should legalize weed. Um, but you have Massachusetts, who also had some good points in their law. California tried. The folks out in Oakland, they're doing some good things. So this is what the United States is all about. We have all of these states so we can have these different types of experiments. So if we just look around and take the good things from the various states uh, as new states come, come online with their legalization, um, uh, that will address some of the concerns that you rightly uh, raised. Absolutely. Um, when people read your, read your book, what is the what is the the lasting take that you want them to that you that you want them to have? Like what is what is what is the the main takeaway that you want people to have from from not just your experience, but from your ideas on on policy and on the uh, the history of the drug war in the country? Yeah, so people should know that this book ain't really about my experience. I I put myself in as a writer just to make it interesting, so it's not a textbook. But this is a data-driven book. This is a science book. Uh, and the thing that I like people to take away from it is that um, middle-class responsible people should get out of the closet about their illegal drug use because there are millions of, of us who are doing this. But we're, let, we're letting the less fortunate among us take the heat uh, while we are protected in our privilege. And so I'm asking people, get out of the closet and particularly those people who look up to people like Rosa Parks, who put themselves on the line, who, who stood on behalf of the less fortunate. I'm asking people to do the same thing. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Dr. Hart, we, we really appreciate it. It's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating discussion. Um, obviously, your voice has been major in it and will continue to be. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see how this all moves forward and keeps moving forward just the latest and so thank you a ton we really appreciate it thank you all for having me dr carl hart uh professor of psychology ziff professor of psychology uh at columbia university in new york city his book for grown-ups chasing liberty in the land of fear is all about uh the misnomers uh in 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 misgivings that we have here about uh drugs in the united states and in the failures 
or not of drug policy in the United States. Please check that out. I think we should leave it at that. I think we should leave it at that. We, uh, we, we, we had a good conversation. We had a great guest today. Um, once again, shout out to Mara. Um, keep, keep her lifted up in, uh, in, in, in your thoughts and in, and in your prayers. Hopefully we will see her back uh, on the podcast cast soon because, I mean, you know, Wes, you my dude, but I mean, it, it's, it's much, much nicer when we have it's her around. It's not Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so until next time, this is Keith Weed. Keith Reed. Keith Weed. I don't know where that came from. Now you're thinking about the guest again. Yeah, no, nah, that's not what I was thinking about, actually. <laughs> um, for, for Wesley Lowry and Marscal Vocampo, this is Keith Weed. <laughs> until next time, we'll, we'll check it later on. Run, tell us. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.